Welcome to the Start of Grind podcast. Starting a company is not for the faint of heart. They're always questioning, 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 tweaking, tweaking, tweaking. Where we talk to entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and thought leaders about how to build a great company. Like my friends, like you think you're crazy. I think you got to be a little nuts. And change the world in the process. We optimize for impact instead of profit. It's never been a more exciting time to be an entrepreneur. From startup grind chapters across the globe. The chapter director for Cape Town. Boise, Idaho. London. Mala, Palestine. Guangzhou, China. And delivered to you every Monday and Wednesday. It's a startup grind. Hey there and welcome to Monday's episode of the Startup Grind podcast. Today we have a great interview with Tina Selig, acclaimed Stanford professor and best-selling author, Brought to us in partnership with the FutureCast series, a collaboration between the AT&T Foundry and Ericsson. Tina Selig is the Professor of Practice in the Department of Management Science and Engineering at Stanford University. She's also a Faculty Director of the Stanford Technology Ventures Program, the Entrepreneurship Center at Stanford University's School of Engineering. She teaches courses on creativity, innovation, and entrepreneurship. Tina also teaches at the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design at Stanford. Tina earned a PhD in neuroscience from Stanford University School of Medicine, where she studied neuroplasticity. She's also worked as a management consultant for Booz Allen Hamilton, a multimedia producer for company Computer Corporation, and was the founder of a multimedia company called Book Browser. She's written 17 books and educational games. Let's listen in to Tina Selig, interviewed in Palo Alto at the AT&T Foundry by Andrew Keene with some additional audience participation. Uh, my name's Dwight Witherspoon. I'm with Ericsson here in Silicon Valley. Uh, also, together with Andrew, one of the founders of Futurecast. Um, I'm, I'm seeing some, some groupy faces out in the audience that, that have been to, to most of these, which is great. So welcome back. And for those that are coming for the first time, welcome. Welcome to Tina, who's going to, we're very excited to have tonight, and is going to talk a lot about something that's really important to the Ericsson AT&T Foundry, which is how to build culture. Um, as much as building technology. So we're all of us very excited to hear from that. A couple of housekeeping notes on the board there, and I think in your seat you'll see some a little cheat sheet on social media. So you'll see the hashtag for FutureCast, hashtag SVFutureCast, and then Andrew, Tina, Erickson, AT&T. So if you are following us on Twitter, please look at that. Um, and we also have a copy of Tina's book for everybody tonight, and I think that she is quite happy to sign that for you as well. It is much easier to sign books than to write them. Awesome. <laughs> all right, so I'm going to let Andrew Keene, our moderator for all of our future cast, get started tonight and then um, have a great conversation. Thanks. So uh, just, just some of you saw Dwight called me over, he said, um, you need to introduce Tina. I thought, oh my God, I don't know who Tina is. She's here. And in her book, she says when, um, when she interviews people, and she always gives this advice to people when they're interviewing people, the first question to ask, and I asked some of you in our uh, brief camera sessions over there, is who are you? So Tina, who are you? I am a teacher and a student. I spend a lot of time teaching, but I try to learn something new every single day. And teaching at Stanford, I get a, lots and lots of opportunities to learn new things. So more than anything else, you think of yourself as a teacher. Is that your? Yeah, an educator. But, but as I said, the way to be the best educator is to be open to new experiences. I am a huge 
Um, believer in the power of curiosity and asking questions. I grew up in a family where my father asked a lot of questions. And when I was a kid, I was always very embarrassed by it until I uh, realized it was genetic and I started doing the same thing. I used to meet my daughter. She's particularly embarrassed when I ask questions. <laughs> uh, it's interesting because in the book, you talk about your job at Stanford. And you said, uh, I mean, you, you, you might say something about that or you, the, the institute you run. Uh, because in the book you confess, I guess, it's a kind of confession, that, um, that uh, when you applied for the job you didn't think you wanted it. Yeah, it's actually a pretty interesting story. Um, I decided I had been, I've been writing books for a long time and there was a point in which I decided I really wanted to get back out and work with other people as opposed to being so isolated. So I was looking at jobs for Stanford, at Stanford. I had a, a young kid and I wanted to work in a place where I had some flexibility. So I was looking at jobs at Stanford and I printed out the job uh, description for the job I ultimately took. But I read it and I crumbled it up and put it in the trash because it was much too junior a job. I mean, I had a PhD, I had a lot of experience. And this job was like a junior level position. What you have a PhD in? Uh, neurophysiology. Oh, easy subject. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so the, the, the thing is, I'd been working in industry. I, you know, and so this job was a junior level job, but it was involved with helping to build this new center on entrepreneurship and technology and innovation. And the next day, I took it out of the trash. And I said, you know, there's something in here. I, at least I'll apply. And I ended up having 11 interviews. And by the end of that process, I was really excited about the possibilities of building this organization. So I ended up, I was fortunate enough to get the job. And uh, the wonderful thing, and the reason I tell the story, is the fact that once I got in the door, the opportunities just presented themselves. And I was able to leverage the fact that I was at Stanford in this really exciting program to do remarkable things. And I ended up getting promoted and promoted and promoted. And just a couple years ago, they made me a real professor which is kind of a fairy tale of coming in as an admin, practically, and becoming a professor. And the fact is, when you get a job, any job, you are not getting just that job. You're getting the keys to the building. And I teach it to my students, is that when you look at a position you're getting, really think about the environment you're going to be joining, that the people you're going to work with. Because really, once you get in the door, the sky's the limit. So you've written this book, Inside Out. You're all going to get it. Uh, I told Tina I, I was in uh, Germany yesterday and I read it on, on my way back on the plane. It's a really good book. Um, it's not your typical business book. It's extremely confessional. It's kind of slightly racy at times. And uh, you really get a, you, you'll all get a sense of who Tina is tonight, but you really got a sense of Tina. She, she, she reveals herself. She, she doesn't pull any punches about who she is, her strengths and weaknesses. Uh, but it's not an autobiography, of course. It's a book about what the, the, uh, the subtitle is, Get Ideas Out of Your Head and Into the World. So it's a book about creativity and innovation and all the buzzwords that we all live and die for in, in Silicon Valley. One of the strikingly in interesting things about the book is most of us use words like innovation and creativity without really distinguishing them. They're all part of the kind of general mush of Silicon Valley, but Tina has organized them in a coherent way so one leads to the other. So educate us, Tina, about the differences between these words. What comes first? How does it lead to the next thing? And what eventually happens? Great. Thank you for inviting me to do this because this is my passion. 
I've been teaching classes on creativity and innovation and entrepreneurship for the last 16 years. And I realize that this is a problem, is that people conflate all these terms. And if I asked everyone in the room to define creativity or innovation or entrepreneurship, we would get as many definitions as we have people in the room. And therefore, when you're talking to each other, when I say innovation, I need something very different than you do. So I decided to put a stake in the ground. I spent a whole year thinking about this and thinking about how should we define these terms. And I thought about other fields like physics and math and music and even sports, where there are very clearly defined vocabulary and relationships that allow us to then apply things, right? I mean, if we know that force equals mass times acceleration, we know what force and mass and acceleration are, and then we know the relationships, and that allows us to then build buildings like this. So here's the framework. It's super simple, and the goal is it to be easy to remember, easy to apply, easy to master. Imagination is envisioning things that don't yet exist. And is that the beginning? That's the beginning. Imagination. We all have imagination. And we all have imagination. We imagine things every single day. When I open up my closet in the morning and I try to imagine what I'm going to need to wear today. I mean, you know, we're imagining, you open up the refrigerator, I imagine what I'm going to have well, for lunch. you knew what to wear because it matches, I it matches the, exactly. the chair. Exactly, I was, I was prescient. So, um, and creativity is applying your imagination to address a problem. So, essentially, creativity is applying my ability to envision what doesn't yet exist to solve a problem. Innovation is applying my creativity to come up with a unique solution. So creative solutions are new to you, but innovative solutions are new to the world. And this is a very important distinction, and people conflate them all the time. But the idea is if you can distinguish between them, then you know, if I, am I solving an everyday problem that I might have solved, but someone else has done it before? Or am I solving a problem in a way that no one else has done? How does this help people, though? Do they have to, when they come up with an idea, should a light bulb go off in their mind? This is innovation. This is creativity. One leads to the next. Or is it intuitive? Well, it's very interesting about this, because there are a lot of people who come up with ideas, and they think they're being innovative. They think they're being innovative, but really they're being creative. And they don't go out and check to see if anyone else has done it before. I see this with my students all the time. Is that, and, and we see this with companies all the time who come up with Me Too products. And they need to go out and say, OK, this is very interesting and new to me, but has anyone done it before? And to do their homework and then say, you know what? It's been done. How do I push further? How do I come up with something that's truly unique? And then the last piece of the puzzle is entrepreneurship. And entrepreneurship is applying the innovation and bringing the idea, scaling it and bringing it to the world. So you go from imagination to creativity, innovation to entrepreneurship. It's a hierarchy. I, I want to compare it to learning how to, to talk. Babies naturally babble. They apply those sounds to make words apply those words to make sentences, and the sentences to make stories. It's the same type of hierarchy that you move through as you go from imagination to entrepreneurship. One of the striking comments in the book, and, and it's full of striking comments, is you write, it's a crime not to teach people to be entrepreneurial. So let's think about that in two ways. Firstly, why is it a crime? And secondly, perhaps more importantly, how do you teach young people to be entrepreneurial? And of course, we have some entrepreneurs here. I hope you're innovative. Which is better, innovative or creative? Innovative. So I hope you're innovative rather than creative. <laughs> but, uh, Both are important. Why is it a crime these days not to teach young people to be entrepreneurial? It, it is. 
uh, we are all responsible for making our place in the world, for solving our everyday problems, for um, bringing our own ideas to life, for crafting the lives we dream to live. And if we're not given those tools, uh, it, it is, it's just very unfair. Uh, one of the things I've been doing recently that has been a very provocative and meaningful experience is teaching entrepreneurship at San Quentin. Mm, and, which uh, must be, is that similar to teaching it at Stanford? Uh, it actually is. How? The, the, um, in fact, I did a project with my students where I brought students to San Quentin, and the students taught the men's program called The Last Mile, which teaches entrepreneurship at San Quentin, and uh, they taught the things that we learned in our class. So they learned it, and then they taught it, and the students were blown away. I mean, these guys who are there are really smart. So these are exceptional people in yes. different fields. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So how does one end up in San Quentin and one at Stanford? Well, because they grew up in a really different environment with very different uh, rules and rewards and incentives, and they made some really bad mistakes. And so they are, know they're going to be getting out, or hopeful to get out, and they know that they are going to need to craft their own lives. They're not going to be able to get jobs in the same way that other people do, and they need to be able to start their own ventures and to be able to, to um, take care of themselves. What are the, do you tell the people in San Quentin that they're like the Stanford students? Yes. And how do they respond? What do you think? They're, I don't know. They are, they are so humbled and they're so appreciative and they're so smart and when I do projects with my Stanford students and do the similar project at San Quentin the results are equally equally inventive and what about the Stanford students when you compare them to the the people in, in San Quentin you know what <laughs> they they look at these guys and they're really impressed with what they've overcome so what does that tell us about our society if the people, the, the, the elite of the elite, Stanford, that accepts, you know, one out of 100,000 students, and then San Quentin, which is top, you know, high security jail in America. How, what does that make of our society when these two communities are kind of similar? Well, first of all, the men who were in this last mile program are an elite group within San Quentin. They had to, they didn't, ha they had to have no um, disciplinary problems. They had to have been basically model citizens, and they have to work really, really hard in this program. So th it's a select group of people who are there. But uh, the point that you're really um, focusing on is that there are a lot of similarities. And when you give people the opportunities to stretch these skills, uh, everybody can learn. This is a question I get asked all the time all the time, almost every single day. In fact, I'm almost surprised and, and actually very <coughs> delighted that you didn't ask me, come on, can you really teach this stuff? Because um, you weren't going to, were you going to ask that? Can I wasn't you really going to ask this? that. Okay. Um, it's oh, funny it's because. Teach you to be creative. Yeah, can, can, because why, we don't question whether we can, should teach math or science or even music or sports. We know that everybody has um, basic level skills and some people might be more skilled than others, but that everyone can get better. And that it's our responsibility to teach people, even people who are not good at math, that we, we, we encourage them to make it through the entire curriculum in math because we know it's gonna be important to them. We should be doing the same thing. And here's the problem. It's difficult to measure creativity. It's difficult to measure entrepreneurial spirit. And therefore, we don't measure it. You know, there's a wonderful quote that says, all things that count can't be counted, and not all things that can be counted count. And this is a perfect example. How do you measure love? How do you measure ethics? How do you measure creativity? But you consider yourself creative and innovative. I do, but I've also practiced a lot. How you would know, you solve the criminal justice system then in America? 
given that I don't know how many, you know, it's the X amount or X percent of more people get put in jail here than anywhere else in the world so, apart from China. So what I would do is have many other alternatives besides going to prison. There, the, the idea of this sort of one track where people uh, make a mistake and they put, get put into prison as opposed to differentiating the different types of people. I would have lots of different types of programs that educate people in different ways. I also would work really hard to prevent people from going into prison. I think that um, you know the, the men that I have met, had they had different types of environments, would have made very different choices in their lives and wouldn't have ended up there in the first place. You have some good examples in your book of people who might have ended up in prison. Uh, Scott Harrison, for example, some of you may know him. Uh, he's actually someone we've talked to about coming to Futurecast. Uh, Scott is the founder, CEO of, of Charity Water, but uh, before Charity Water, he certainly flirted, I think, with criminality of one kind or another. Why do you use Scott uh, Harrison as an example of someone who, who is one of your models in the book? Yeah, it's a, it's a really fascinating story. He spoke at Stanford, and um, I encourage people to watch the interview on our website, which is ecorner.stanford.edu. That's a little commercial. And Charity Water is an exceptionally good organization. I yeah. Think. So what happened is he was in his 20s. He was a nightclub promoter in New York, which meant his job was to get people drunk. And the drunker he got to them, the better. So uh, he was really good at his job. And he got people really drunk as well as he got himself drunk. And so he became an alcoholic, a drug addict. He was addicted to all sorts of other things. And uh, he woke up one morning and realized his life was a mess. And he was down in South America. And he said, I need the opposite of my life. And so what he did is he decided he wanted to work for a charitable organization to do something completely different than what he was doing. So he wrote letters to all of these charities all over the uh, world and asked to volunteer. And they all said no. He did not look like someone who could contribute until finally he heard back from one organization, uh, Mercy Ships. And they said, uh, come to work with us. But if you do, you actually have to pay us. And he said, fine. So he wrote a check, and he went with them to Liberia. He didn't even know where Liberia was. And uh, he showed up there and was blown away because so many people were stricken with terrible waterborne diseases. And he instantly said, I have to do something. So he went back to New York, used his skills as a nightclub promoter to promote the cause of clean drinking water. And the message from that story is very, very important is that before it's your passion, it's something you likely don't know anything about. And that it's not that our, our passions don't, aren't born fully formed. We're not born with our passions. So when people are looking for their passion, that's a misguided. You need to go out and get engaged in the world. Engagement leads to your passions, not the other way around. You argue that experiment requires the breaking of eggs. I like that uh, metaphor. And the book, I think, is particularly interesting because it's slightly confessional. You, 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 you write about some of the eggs you've broken. Tell the audience, I don't want to necessarily pick on one particular example, but how does your life conform to some of the, the examples you give? How have you broken some eggs? Well, you know what? Breaking eggs can be interpreted in lots of different ways. I am a huge believer in, in the power of experimentation. 
And uh, when you do experiments, sometimes they don't turn out as you expect. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people call those failures. And I call them data. I'm a scientist. And when you do experiments and they don't turn out as you expect, it's still data. And you can mine it. In fact, in my book, What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20, I have a chapter called The Secret Sauce of Silicon Valley, which is all about uh, the um, importance of mining failures and the fact that in this area, we are very good at that. I, in fact, uh, include my own failure resume in that book. Um, I have my students write failure resumes, all their biggest screw-ups, personal, professional, and academic. And the idea is it's OK to fail as long What's as you. What's your biggest failure? My biggest failure. I have so many failures, it would well, be hard to even say. Which failure are you most proud of? <laughs> my failure I am most proud of. Um, OK. In a, in a, in a, in a okay. pedagogical sense. I'll tell you, I'll tell you. Um, I, when I started my first company, I started a company that was called Book Browser. It was after my first book came out. And I said, you've got to be kidding. There's got to be a better way to sell books, market books. Um, you know, it's the publishers, especially in those days, it was before all social media and e ability for authors to actually get the word out about what they were doing. You know, the book, they leave it like on the doorstep and hope someone will find it. So um, I said, there's got to be a better way. So I designed a company. I started a company called Book Browser, which was in 1991, so it was before the web. Um, there was a kiosk-based system for bookstores to match books with buyers. And it was essentially a precursor to Amazon. Mm. You could look at books by title, by author, by subject, links to books of interest, audio samples. And it was doing really well. The, the model was publishers paid per title, per book, per, um, per book, per month. So it made a lot of money from the beginning. You know, all these publishers, yes, of course they wanted this. But I hit a wall um, early on after two years. And uh, I really didn't have the grit, the persistence, to push through and figure out the solution. And part of it was that I had wanted to just prove that I could start a company and sell it in two years. That was sort of the vision I had. So I was limited somewhat by my own vision. But also, um, I wasn't confident enough that I could solve the problem, so I sold the business. Now, within a year of my selling it, Mosaic came out. And it became clear, and I sold it to a company and I was working for them, it became clear that that was going to solve all the problems, being able to put it online. But the fact is, my biggest failure was not being confident, not, not having a big enough vision to, and, and pushing through when the going got rough. And We're going to open this up, Tina. I just One more question. Yeah. Um, and this is something you don't have in this book, but I think, especially speaking to you, and uh, it's increasingly question that I think is relevant. You leave out the issue of energy. You obviously, self-evidently, have tremendous energy. And I think one of the things that distinguishes creative, innovative, entrepreneurial people um, is their energy. And the people who want to live these lives but don't know how, uh, to, to misquote Donald Trump, are low on energy. Where does energy come from? You know, energy is really, really important. Having a lot of energy is one of the biggest assets you can have. I was is this that biological? Is it just you know, there? I was like the most hyperactive kid in the world. I, can I mean, see you're ready up. Uh, no, you're no, but I used to literally bounce off the walls. I'm very, very calm. Do you ever sleep? <laughs> I love sleep. Sleep is like. But where does super... that come from? And if you don't have it, if you are again, to quote Donald Trump, a low energy person, can you create that? 
You know, it's a really good question. I would I love for people in the audience here who might have low the energy people. people or people who have been able energy. to I believe though that if you're really excited about something it generates energy there are people who start out not being inspired by the world but once they find something that's really motivating it generates this incredible um, sort of fountain of energy that you can draw upon so I, I'm I would be welcome other people to talk about that well, I know Gunja Nagarwal you are uh, again, I um, hope I get your title right. You are, you 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 head up the sort of the, the creativity and innovation at Ericsson. Is that fair? Actually, I uh, head up recruiting and M and for. But you focus <laughs> on the creative. I support that. Yeah. So, has Tina helped you here when you, in terms of when you go out and look for creative people? What do you look for? Is it the energy? Is it the innovation? Is it the commitment to entrepreneurship? How can people like Tina help you in your search for this and your investment in people? Actually, um, I, um, I'm lucky that I attended one of your sessions at Stanford um, as part of the Ericsson uh, Executive Program. Uh, but I think energy, Tina, is very important. We do get influenced by energy when we are interviewing candidates. And, uh, and that plays a role because in our organization, uh, we, if I just think about it, we have cracked the code of staying relevant for more than 100 years. We are going on 140 years, which is not something you can say for the most innovative companies here in the Bay Area. And for us uh, to really be able to do that, we need people who have the energy to go against the grain and the bureaucracy, which happens to be in big companies and to really be creative and innovative for us. So I think that is really critical for us and energy really plays a very important so role. How do you find it? Do you just, when someone comes into the room and you interview, do you say, who are you? I mean, that's what Tina says you should do. Uh, we, well, we don't say who are you, but yeah, one of the things we do try to figure out is who are you and how, um, how stubborn and determined would you be to continue to charge through with your idea when the easy thing to do is to give up and go with the flow. So we do, we do look for that, and that's kind of the cultural attributes we, we uh, find um, and we look for. Ganjan has talked about Ericsson. It's no secret that they are an old company, for better or worse, a company that's been around for 140 years. Most companies haven't been around that long. Most companies die way before that. Is that what distinguishes a company that survives versus one that doesn't? So obviously the world keeps changing. And, and more and more now. I mean, it's harder and harder exactly, to survive. Exactly, exactly. So the context continues to change. The competitive landscape continues to change. So the key is, of course, you need to keep innovating. You got to keep pushing further. And those companies, obviously, that don't do that, ultimately, somebody. What's your model for a company that's investing very successfully in creativity? I mean, Google obviously comes to mind. I don't think. Do you mention Google in the book? Yeah, I you think I do. The moonshots, yeah, I think we right. talked about I mean, that, which, of course, everybody knows about but, that. Uh, but are they your, your model? Are they the paradigm for this, or are there other companies, larger companies? Isn't it wonderful to see the diversity of the different types of firms that are out there? There are so many different types of leaders, so many different organizations who are doing different things. I mean, that's wonderful. You look at a huge range of companies, and you can say, what type of leader do I want to be? What type of organization do I want? Yeah, but you can't get, I mean, some companies are better than others. But some if you companies... think about Ericsson, or you think about Google, I'm going to get 
suggests that they're very different, right? And yet they're both successful. So I, I, I think that every leader or group of leaders has to decide what's right for them. Um, I also think it's really important. I, I, I often get questions from people, especially uh, young people who have gone through our programs and they've been taught how to be really innovative, how to be creative, and then they go into a big company and they feel stifled. And they say, how do I handle that? How do I deal with it? And one of the answers is, oh, say, find other like-minded people in the company, do these types of things to try to influence, or guess what? Leave. You know what? It's possible if a company doesn't match your style, go somewhere else. Start your own company. You know, you're not an indentured servant. And so I, I think it's very important for us to realize that we can move. And so if I go to Ericsson and it's a great match, fabulous. If I go to a Google and it's a great match, fabulous. But if it's not, guess what? I can pick up and go to another one or decide to start my it's own. It's easy to say. There was a, a, a piece many of you would have read about Amazon in the New York Times a few weeks ago about the the brutally innovative culture there, the fact that you know, most of the senior people at some point or other break down at their desk, most people are very unhappy. Bezos pushes people so hard. Is there a dark side to all this? Well, isn't that interesting? I mean, I'm gonna wonder, how many people in the room have been in a company, been in any organization, it could be a classroom, right, that you uh, feel really stifled? I mean, somewhere, time in your career that you felt that way. Okay, everybody, 99.9% of people. Well, right? Okay, or family, exactly. I mean, <laughs> exactly, it can be a family, exactly. Well, this is a really important point. I actually, in my book, Ingenious, I have uh, several chapters about different aspects of culture. And I basically talk about the fact that, you know, every organization, from a baseball team, a family, you know, any group of friends has a culture. And we're super tuned to those cultures. So when you walk in the door, you quickly figure out what the rules of the game are. But guess what? You can either try to change the rules or you can join another team. And so, yes, I mean, I read that article with great interest about Amazon. Do you think it was fair? I'm going to assure that the reporter had some you know, point of view that they were trying to communicate. I'm sure we've all read articles about things we know about, and we read it and we say, this isn't, you know, there's some piece of truth here, and somebody had an agenda. I, I'm going to guess that it's, can be, it's a very demanding environment. So some people throw, I know actually some people who work at Amazon, quite a number, who love it. And so I'm gonna guess that other people don't. And so it's their responsibility to either make it work for them or to go somewhere else. The economist Tyler Cowan also has a column, I think, in the New York Times, wrote a book recently called Average is Over. What happens to average people in this world? Yeah, isn't that interesting when you think about that? You never if, come across average people at Stanford, right? Right, right. yeah. Well, or San Quentin. So here's the thing. You know, yeah, they're average. And so when you think about an organization, especially a big organization, right, at some point, there's a movement toward the average. I mean, at some point. So uh, there are the companies like Amazon, the way that was described, or, or Oracle, that do these sort of stack ranking and, you know, get rid of the bottom uh, performers. You know what? I can understand why a company would want to do that. There are sometimes there are bad hiring decisions. You know, I happen to work at a place, uh, Stanford, where it's actually really, really difficult to get rid of anybody if they're not a good performer. And it's a very, that's a very difficult type of environment to be in. So to be in an organization, if someone's not a good fit and you can say this isn't working out, you can, why don't you go be successful somewhere else? You know what, I'm gonna guess that for a lot of people, when they have gotten fired from a job, that ended up being a gift in disguise. They went off and did something else, right? 
looks like I'm getting lots of head nodding here. Okay, right? And well, Nick, you're a startup entrepreneur. Does this resonate with you? Does this make you more or less eager to go and work for a large company? Uh, my experience generally is large companies sort of induce fear and anxiety generally in the people who work for them. Have you ever worked for one? And you might introduce yourself as well. Yeah, uh, I'm Nick uh, Foster. I work for a, a startup in San Francisco called Quid. Um, I've worked for a number of large companies, both you know, as sort of a, a peon and a minion in that framework. And also, I, I've been up the chain. I've, I've, I'm sure I've instilled enough fear and anxiety in people who have worked for me, accidentally too. But I, uh, what, what resonated was this, the hierarchy you mentioned between imagination, creativity, innovation. I think big companies have a structure that sometimes stop imagination. Their employees go home every night, they invent stories for their kids, they do art. They're not at home thinking, oh, I'm being creative, but they come in through the door of the company and now they're following the role they believe they should follow. And I think that's probably the, the stifling moment. Cool. Uh, sorry, I just want to add Juan uh, from Rally Team. You were nodding there. Do you agree with me? Absolutely. Like I spent most of my career in the corporate world. And every Who did you work for? I've worked for Microsoft, worked for a large telecom company, large tech company, large energy company, large consulting company. Every single job that I've left has never been because of the paycheck. It's always been because I got bored, right? I wanted to do more and learn more. But as Nick said, you know, with these large companies, there's often silos, right? And it's hard to break free from those silos because this is what your job is. This is what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to think outside of this silo, right? So it makes it really difficult to be innovative, be creative within these large organizations. Mari I just want to add Mariano as well, another startup guy who's demoing here. Mariano, are you? on the same page as, as Nick and, uh, and the other entrepreneurs here? So I, so I, 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 I never... You might introduce yourself as well. So I'm, I'm Mariano Srotan from Argentina. I run a company called Mural, my second or third startup, or, or fourth if you consider the very poor failures in the, in the adolescence. Um, but um, I, didn't, I, I never worked in a company, only when my last company got acquired. So it was acquired by a big media company. And again, always start up, per, I mean, out of college. Uh, and when I was working, I mean, I had to leave that company after my golden handcuffs were off because I was pitching a game idea that a committee d decided that it, it might not be a $100 million idea. And I said, OK, <laughs> how do you know? Please tell me. So I need that, that crystal ball too, right? So, I mean, uh, I guess that the right answer, they, they should have given me back, say, wait, let's go try this with a little budget, right? I think it's, it's happening more and more. Large companies are, are, are switching to a more experimental uh, culture. Again, still siloed, as, as I said. So AT&T Foundry, for example, it's, it's, uh, in, it's an initiative in there. I don't know about the rest of AT&T. Hopefully, it is. Uh, but I think there's a change in, in, in the enterprise. But I can't uh, resist giving the microphone to Ruth, putting her on. She always puts me on the hot seat, so I can put her on the hot seat. Ruth, you are an innovator within AT&T. Is that a contradiction in terms? <laughs> <laughs> um, luckily, I'm not the only one. Um, I work in the foundry here. Um, so we are a, bandit, uh, a, bandit, a group of bandits of, uh, within AT&T. Um, we're all rebels and we all support each other in that. So that's very helpful and a good recipe um, for... Um, but don't you, know. you need a Steve Jobs, a champion, to do that? We do. We, do. we have one. We're very lucky. Who is that? John, um, Donovan. John Donovan. 
um, was the visionary for the foundries. Um, and I think you can be an innovator within a large organization. I mean, we are lucky. There was the uh, mention of silos. Uh, we are a cross-functional team, and often, you know, sometimes we can get caught up in the silos, but then we uh, have lunch, we collaborate on projects, and we're really lucky that we have this kind of environment and space and autonomy here to, you know, put on programs like Futurecast. I get to choose what topic I want every time. There's no one giving me marching orders because we're here, we're in open space, and we're able to innovate um, and have, have the room to play that out. So things like proof of concepts, um, speaking on behalf of the company, um, exploring partnerships. That's why the Foundry was created, so that we can meet these great entrepreneurs and really fully explore the potential there, um, rather than um, them trying to talk to 10 different people in all parts of the country and, um, and, and not have much clear direction. A quick break from Tina Selig for some recent startup headlines. Google's DeepMind is set to analyze 1 million eye scans with the aim of creating AI algorithms that may be able to detect early signs of disease. The company is partnering with the UK's National Health Service and London's Moorfield Eye Hospital for the research project. DeepMind previously collaborated with the NHS on the app Streams, providing physicians with the latest available medical data. NBA consultancy service marketplace Hourly Nerd has raised $22 million in a Series C round led by General Catalyst, with participation from Greylock, Highland, and others. The company matches businesses with vetted experts based on specific needs and areas of expertise. They raised $35 million to date. Blockchain identity platform NetKey has raised $3.5 million in a C round led by O'Reilly AlphaTech Ventures, with participation from Base Ventures and others. The California-based startup provides verification tools for Bitcoin wallets. Let's get back to the interview with Tina Seeley. Tina, this word silo is becoming fashionable. Uh, firstly, I'd like you to define what it means. Gillian Tett, who's a very good financial times journalist, has just come out with a new book on silos and how some companies like Facebook and Google are fighting silos. Why that? Firstly, what is a silo? And secondly, why is it, maybe you, you agree or don't, but why is it such a fashionable issue now, and why do so many companies want to break silos down? Well, obviously, if, if a silo is keeping people separate, well, who what should is a silo? be? Well, let's so let's let's define it, right? It's a group of people within an organization who are insulated from from each other, right? So. Let's think of a silo in a university, right? If you've got the chemistry department and the math department and the history department and they don't talk to each other, that would be considered a silo. And clearly we know that at a university or at a company, the more cross-pollination you have, the better because the interesting things happen at the boundaries. So the goal is to break them down. A lot has to do with the way the organization is structured, right? If someone has a lot of power and power over their silo, they don't want to give that up because you know if I see what's going on in the other silo, I want to do something differently. But there's something I really want to bring up that, that all of these comments sort of begged was that the piece of the, the, the model that I didn't get to tell you or that I didn't tell you about this the imagination, creativity, innovation, entrepreneurship, it's actually a cycle. And I call it the invention cycle. It goes back to the beginning. It goes back to imagination. So here's what happens. An individual or a group of individuals comes up with a vision. They imagine the way the world might be different. They 
that stimulates creative problem solving. It also then stimulates or encourages people to come up with innovative solutions and then goes to entrepreneurship, but the, where you start scaling the ideas. But that cannot happen without inspiring the imagination of other people. And so you end up with these wave upon wave of innovation and entrepreneurship because it goes around and around and around. And so really the leader of an organization, their responsibility is to continue to inspire the imagination of others in their organization. And that's a huge failure of leadership if the leaders don't do that. And so in, in companies that, um, where you see a lot of innovation, you have inspiring leadership that gives people a lot of autonomy to, to do more. I mean, one of the reasons that I've been successful at Stanford is that I, my imagination was stimulated, which then gave, empowered me to come up with lots of new ideas. My job is to inspire the people who work for me. And so you end up getting this huge multiplying effect. Is it effect. a power thing? Is it a gender thing? I mean, how do you do that? How could it be a gender thing? I don't know. I'm asking you. I think anybody can embody these. You know, this this is something that is completely. But, but isn't silos a sort of, uh, you know, it suits a certain kind of mentality? People who are slightly insecure and want to keep their power, their identity, not willing to give something up. Probably so. And so being open to new ideas, being willing to see different points of view. It does challenge people. But is that, can, can that be taught? Is that just intuitive? How do, how do you do that? So one of the things that's really great that we can do in our classes is give people um, the opportunity to get comfortable with uncertainty. Right, giving them opportunities to have problems that don't have a right answer, where they can go and explore lots of, lots of potential, and to realize that sometimes they're not right and that there's a different point of view. And so the more experience you get with this, the more comfortable you get in these situations, and the more likely you are when you get out into the world to uh, be This is open a new world, Tina, isn't it? This is a world that you, know, you and I are relatively similar ages. When we were growing up, when we were being educated, you never hear, heard about silos or imagination or breaking eggs. You didn't? People didn't break eggs? Well, they did, but they didn't talk about it or boast about it. So for this young generation, we have uh, Gianni here. How old are you, Gianni? Does this world scare you? Are you excited by this, that you're not going to have a career? You're not going to learn to be a lawyer or a doctor or an accountant? You're just going to have to break a lot of eggs? Well, I really don't know what that means, per se. <laughs> so. Well, Tina will explain it. So breaking eggs means you know um, you're going to have to do some experiments and things might not work out as you expect, and you might have to break some rules. What do you think about breaking rules? I teach my students that most. I teach, I teach my students that most rules are just recommendations. Rules are made by people to make it easy for them, not easy for you. Well, sometimes I think it's good to follow the rules, but sometimes I think there's rules that really are there for no reason and just there to be put so people can f oblige, follow their directions. So for power. Yeah. But for 13-year-olds, you know, this stuff comes naturally to us and we've all achieved quite a lot. Most people here have achieved something. It's much harder for kids. You, you can't teach someone to be disobedient, can you? Especially with their, you know, their mothers are sitting next to them. Well, you can give them more choices, right? So instead of giving rules, you can give people a menu of choices, or you can ask them questions. So a, a, a classic example I use in, uh, in my classes would be, um, what is the sum 
of five plus five? The sum? What's the sum of five plus I've five? I never was good at math. What's, Gianni? What's the sum of five plus five? Ten. Ten. How many answers are there to that question? One answer. That wasn't a trick question, right? There's one answer. Is there a way to teach that math problem, that math concept of adding two numbers to get another number that where you might not have one right answer? Yes. How could you do that? Yeah, methods exactly. Exactly. Or you could ask even a simple question like, "What two numbers add up to ten? How many answers are there to that?" Who wants to answer? Infinite number, right? Negative numbers, fractions, decimals, right? They're an infinite number of solutions. So here you went from a problem that had one right answer to a problem with an infinite number of solutions. So here's what you do. You give problems that have an infinite number of solutions. Most of us in our daily life, in our work, are not given problems like what are the sum of so five to five. That's, it's liberating. It's liberating. Ellen, you, again, as someone who I think fits Tina's model as someone who worked for a large company, or will remain nameless, and you told me in the drinks that you become an entrepreneur. What led you from one to the other? Um, well. I was actually let go of Ericsson, um, so I was um, in a downturn, which turned out to be the best that happened, uh, because it led me to start my first company. And when I did it the first time, I kind of realized that you can actually uh, control your own destiny, and it's only the creativity that, that hinders you to actually do what you want, and it's pretty amazing. So it's... Uh, it's great to come up with an idea and then you realize that, you know what, you can actually make stuff. And I build things, I build hardware. And, and yeah, it's harder to do within a company. I still work as a bridge between large corporations and startups, so I think there's a lot of things that large corporations can learn from the startup environment, but I also think that the startup community can learn from large corporations. So I like the freedom of being an entrepreneur, but uh, I still, like the large corporations environment as well, but the freedom is, and creativity that you can have, that mindset, I think large corporations should have as well. So I don't see a- Evelyn, yeah. you're, a, you're again a startup entrepreneur. You're with another of the, the companies demoing here. Do you sometimes miss the security of a large company knowing that you're not gonna, you know, that there's a wage at the end of the week, that the company's not gonna go bankrupt, that there's no perpetual flux? Don't some people just, want security, isn't that a natural human instinct? So it depends, I think, what people view. you imagine introduce yourself and tell everyone oh, your company. Yeah. So I work at SmartUp, and SmartUp is an app, which is a learning and mentoring app for new startups, entrepreneurs, and organizations who want to be more like a startup, who want to learn about what's happening in a startup scene, to have that startup mentality, basically. Um, so to answer to your question, I think that it depends what people view to be a security. So I've never worked in a large company. Uh, and this startup is my first job, like proper one. <laughs> and um, for me, security and freedom and uh, happiness of work is that I can be exposed to learning. So in the startup that I work for, it's, it's a lot of learning every day. You, you never know what you're gonna be end up doing you know, tomorrow. And uh, you always know by learning, you actually become much more aware of what's happening around you. And by being more present and aware, um, 
you know, you, you can feel that you have that power of creating anything. So it gives you more confidence. It doesn't limit you in terms of those rules. It doesn't limit you in terms of like the, the environment. Environment is very important because if you are surrounded by like-minded people, you feel free to do anything. And then you are not afraid to tell what you think, to risk taking and all that kind of stuff. So it's very Learning. empowering. So it's, it's the university of life, Tina. It is. What's the point of Stanford? So a really, really good question. You know what? You can learn in lots of different environments. The thing that Stanford is, does that's most powerful, and you know what? I've said this many times, is they pick a community of people. You know, you, you work with colleagues, right? You're not working all by yourself. So what the admissions department is one of the most powerful groups on campus because they pick the people who are going to be in that community. And that's why people come to school. First of all, they obviously are learning something, but you know, knowledge is a commodity these days, right? You can learn in lots and lots of different ways. But the, the opportunity to work with really interesting people who come from different backgrounds from all over the world, uh, that provides a tremendous, a tremendous opportunity. Uh, a few months ago, Sebastian Thrun of Udacity sat in your, right your hot green seat. He didn't wear a dress as nice as yours. But um, uh, is there a, a future for the, I mean, the Udacities uh, of the world? Uh, are they making the university essentially obsolete, do you so think? I've had the um, opportunity. I've taught three MOOCs. Right. So I've had about 25 or 30,000 students in each one. Uh, one was two were called a crash course on creativity, and one was creativity music to my years. I worked with uh, all these rock stars from uh, Warner Brothers, so they were really fun experiences. Um, I'm not going to do it again. So why? Uh, so a it's an massive amount of work, um, and You're also lazy. I, I work. <laughs> I have a lot of other classes I'm teaching, but the other thing is, yeah, I'm lazy. <laughs> Um, the, the thing is that the population of students from all over the world is not the same as the curated collection of students at Stanford. It's a very, very, it's a very complicated to teach this very, very diverse group. But what I did learn out of this was something very interesting is that in a classroom, I'm expected to be the one who sort of adds all the energy to the room and motivates everyone. Can't do that when you've got 30,000 people in the class. So what you end up doing is you really distribute that responsibility to the class. And they help each other. So it becomes a learning community in a very, very different way because at that scale, they all help each other. And what happens is people bubble up in the course who become almost de facto teaching assistants. So it's a, it, I found that it was a remarkable experience for me to see and it, what it meant to teach in an extreme environment. And it's made me give much more uh, responsibility to the students in my classes because I realize if it happens online, it can certainly happen in a classroom as well. So Kurt. And you're never going to forgive me for this question, but you're a serial entrepreneur, which is a polite way of saying you're about my age, and everybody else is 30 years younger. Thanks for that. But here's the, here's the nice part of the question. You've survived. You still have some hair. This idea of, 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 of doing lots of companies, of not necessarily being you know, an 18-year-old entrepreneur, what have you learned from your experience of, 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 of founding, of creating lots of companies? Uh, is there a kind of wisdom that comes from it, different from the traditional wisdom of growing up? 
And you might introduce yourself and tell everyone what you do. Yeah, hi everybody. I'm Kurt Bauer. I'm the co-founder of a company called bud to bud and we have a, uh, an app running on iOS and Android called QSQ.us, and it's an it's a integrated music platform, so you can aggregate services and socialize with your friends and listen with them live. So that's what I, that's what I spend my, my days doing. And it, you've done a lot of uh, startups. Yes, before. yes, definitely. And I've also worked at larger companies, and um, you know, I found myself moving toward, in my career, moving toward smaller companies, smaller environments, because I was too immature to really operate with grown-ups in the larger, larger companies. And, um, you still don't wear socks. Right? No, I try to avoid it. Um, but I had some profound failures as a result of that. And, and as everybody's talking here, I'm thinking, well, you know, I wonder if I could go back into a, a larger environment. And I think you, know, you, you learn doing entrepreneurial things and you know, getting, in, get, getting involved in M&A and being swallowed by larger companies and then leaving, going to starting another thing, and that whole cycle, you, you learn patience, and, patience and, you know. and, and when, to, when to attack and when to retreat, and all those things. And those are, those are still valid in an entrepreneurial environment, because you can't do everything. So some things can be learned, and th things like patience, you can't learn when you're an 18-year-old. Do you have to be a little bit more than 18 to learn those sorts to of things? To learn patience? You know, we're all different. Some people are naturally very patient and some people are very impulsive and uh, uh, can't wait five minutes for a reward. So obviously as we get older, we, we might have to learn that you know, more quickly. But I'm impatient for other questions. I'm not just picking on this. And you might introduce, uh, do we want the... Uh, uh, and please, we, we've got about 20 minutes left, so lots of questions. Uh, so, Pemo Theodore, I'm founder of EasyViz. We do media um, and streaming and uh, event organising. One word I haven't heard all night, and that's the words risk. And I, I feel that that is like the core of what you're talking about, what Andrew's talking about, what everyone's talking about. That in the corporates, they're, they're risk averse, usually. And in the startup world, you have to be risk tolerant. And I think that that might be something that can't totally be learnt because I think some people's nature innately um, goes away from risk, that doesn't want risk, wants security. And I have seen that in our ecosystem, really. Um, so I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. So I want to just ask, uh, how many people in the room think they're risk takers? Great. So here's the thing that's so interesting to me about risk is that um, I did a lot of thinking about risk and realized that risk comes in lots of different flavors, but we don't often distinguish between them. There are physical risks, there are financial risks, there are emotional risks, there are social risks, there are intellectual risks, there are ethical risks. Yeah, so what, we can make a long list of different types of risks. And so what happens is we all have our own risk profile. So I'm not a financial risk taker. I'm not a physical risk taker. But as you mentioned in the book, I'm very much an emotional risk taker. I will tell people almost anything. Okay? I, okay, I'm an emotional risk taker. And my husband said he's looking a bit nervous. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, but I'm a, I'm a social risk taker. I'm an emotional risk taker. I'm an intellectual risk taker. We need to know our own risk profile because that allows us to know we might have to have other people on our team who mm -hmm. balance us out. Uh, the other thing, and, and I think this is really important, is that startup companies, venture capitalists, 
are actually trying to squeeze the risk out of their venture. They're not, I mean, a venture capitalist is actually not trying to pick the riskiest venture. They're trying to pick the least risky venture. They want the one that is going to, they want the best team. They want the best market. They want the best technology. And so, yes, they, they might look like it's risky to the outside world, but they're doing their due diligence and are trying to pick something that has the highest possibility of success. So. Um, I think the whole risk and failure is a very is very intertwined and when we're kids this is really important when we're kids we are learning all the time through trial and error right how many of you walked the first time you tried how many of you rode a bicycle the first time you tried nobody right and yet, why do we expect adults to do really complicated things correctly without any mistakes the first time? And so when we're taking on big, bold things, especially innovations that have never been done before, we understand that there's going to be a lot of trial and error. So what we do in our classes to teach people this is we teach them to do experiments, prototypes, predotypes, do little experiments to test their ideas out so they don't end up leaving a big crater in the ground, right? If you do a little experiment, right, you do a little experiment, you get some little bit of data. Oh, that's encouraging. I now do a bigger experiment. Gives me more data. That's even more encouraging. So this is why venture capital so bring come back when you've got a prototype. Come back when you've got some customers. Come back when you've got the next milestone, right? And then they go, okay, now we have enough data, we'll invest. Yeah, uh, my name is Nate Gillespie. I lead the creative services team at uh, Inkling, which is a cloud-based publishing startup in San Francisco. And this comes all the time, because we consult with our uh, customers who say, I want to make something really exciting and new and different. My job is actually leading bankruptcy uh, litigation cases in the UK. I don't know how to make this content about bankruptcy exciting. Um, and I think that exactly your idea of sort of helping people take risks that feel less risky by making them smaller, by letting them experiment, putting them in workspaces and using tools that allow them to really quickly try something, see if it worked. If it didn't work, try again. That's not a failure or a risk. That's an experiment that you know you can get. The, just you're meant exactly. to exactly. keep it running. Exactly. And if you view yourself as a scientist doing some experiments, that no matter what the result, it's going to be interesting. And if you spend way too much time um, and money and resources in something that isn't successful, um, shame on you for not doing the experiments that are going to let you know whether you're going in the right direction or not. And some cultures are better than others. I mean, Mariano's from Argentina. I assume one of the reasons you're here is it's not necessarily a culture that promotes entrepreneurialism. I spent the summer in Chile, which is better at that. But on a macro level, why, uh, Tina, why do some cultures work in terms of encouraging risk and others don't? I mean, you know, Germany is, again, a culture which seems to be very wary, very nervous of risk. Yeah, I've had fortunate enough that I get to travel to different places in the world. In fact, when we last uh, met, we were in a hot tub in uh, in oh, you Chile. Guys have met yeah, in a hot tub in Chile. Oh my God! He reminded me. <laughs> we go way back. Way, way, go way back. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> Did your husband hear that? <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. There were a few other. <laughs> More people there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were there were a few other people there, but uh, anyway, but the 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 thing is, um, there are tremendous differences in cultural responses to risk taking. Um, 
I, it, it's fascinating, those places in the world where people feel as though not, it's not even a personal risk, it's going to tarnish their entire family's name mm. if they have a failure. And they're devastated. And the laws support that. You know, exactly. You, I still think uh, in some Middle Eastern countries you get put in jail for, right. for, and for going Spain, bankrupt. And in Spain, I don't know if they still do this, if you go bankrupt, they literally publicly shame you. I mean, it is really, really um, terrible. Yeah, and one thing is government promoting or not, well, that's Chile, and the other thing is the culture, right? I mean, in, I, I think in the Argentines, there's enough good entrepreneurs there because, well, multiple reasons. One is because we are in, in, inherited the Italian culture, so we're very egomaniac, so we think that we can yeah. take over the world. But secondly, uh, I mean, yeah, economic circumstances go up and down so much that if we don't, if we're not entrepreneurial, we basically die of starving, right? Because, I mean, there's no, like, uh, I mean, it's, it's being safe is risky there. Um, but, but yeah, def definitely the, the environment helps out. And, and if you want to create a global startup, yes, I mean, it's, this is a place to be for that. Uh, we have great engineers and everything, but the market is too small there. But, well, we can keep on talking about it in, in different profiles. Just gentleman of people with the flat cap. I don't know your name. You might introduce yourself to. Hi, I'm Rishi. I work here at the Foundry. So my question is for you, uh, and uh, I hope I can put it succinctly. Uh, you, you compared being imaginative, creative, and then an entrepreneur as learning a language. And learning languages is kind of inherent in human nature. And I can take it as an analogy that that being, being imaginative, creative, and entrepreneur is also inherent in human nature. Now, uh, between creativity and entrepreneurship, you showed the example of people at Stanford and people at San Quentin uh, in prison. Uh, so do you think that the difference between creativity and entrepreneurship is resources? So in, uh, in other words, can you make omelets without eggs? So can I? Can you make omelets without eggs? Yeah. So I, I'm going to interpret that question is like look at well about constraints, eggs. right? Constraints. But constraints are a powerful, powerful motivator for creativity. Lack of resources. Lack of resources. In fact, we all know stories about companies that have way too much money and make really poor decisions. Lack of resources means you end up uh, looking at the resources you have through a different light. In fact. Um, it's one of the most um, valuable things for an entrepreneur is to have very few things. In Maine's, they have to uh, make some really hard decisions about what's really the most important thing. Um, I think of, I'm trying to think of some, oh, I know. Okay, here's an example that actually is from my last book, but it's one that's a well-known story uh, from Monty Python. Um, in the movie, well, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, they uh, have a scene where they have horses, you probably know the scene, coming over the hill to, I don't know, attack a something, uh, you know, and um, a fortress. And uh, they wanted horses, but they couldn't afford horses. So what did they do? Do you know what they did? Coconuts. Coconuts. They used coconuts. Okay, and so you hear the horses coming over the hill, you hear the horses, and all of a sudden you see them coming over the hill bang coconuts together. Not only did it work, it's funnier. 
it's better. If they had had horses, it would have been fine. The fact that they have coconuts makes it hysterical. Okay, so they end up they end up becoming this incredibly iconic scene that had they had the resources, they wouldn't have actually done that. They would have had horses. And so oftentimes the decisions you make when you have fewer resources end up being much more clever than the ones that you make if you have a lot of resources. So I'm a huge believer that constraints are a powerful stimulant for creativity. Period. Gentleman here. Striped shirt. Hi, Tina. Um, hi, everyone. My name hi is there. Isaac. Um, I'm a student at Stanford um, from Nigeria, um, Africa. And you know, when you talk about resources and how constraints shape creativity, I agree to a large extent, but you know, I'm thinking about how it also limits your skill. And you know, in an environment like mine, where I grew up, there are no remarkable success stories. That's because somehow, their success has been capped by lack of resources. They do well. well. You're a success story. You're at Stanford, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, business success. Like, you know, these guys have bootstrapped and built this company, and it's become a global brand. There are not that much of them, and I feel that ability to break out of that mode and become success brands also reinforced in the ecosystem itself that it's possible. Because if we are not seeing lots of companies that are doing that, then we just think, okay, this is only the much I can do given the constraints I have, and that's it. So how do you overcome this constraint of resources, which are very real, and build brands that can be global and support the rest so, of the ecosystem? So this is really important. And, and I think one of the biggest problems is that people don't celebrate their local role models. So we often use Silicon Valley role models. And so here you are in Africa, and you're reading stories about Silicon Valley. You should be reading stories about the people who are doing things in your community, right? There, I'm going to switch around this way. In Argentina, there are tons, and in Chile, there are tons of successful entrepreneurs. It behooves us for, to have the people who are there learn the stories of the local entrepreneurs as opposed to learning the stories of people somewhere else. Because what happens is you start saying, oh, I can only do this when I'm in that environment. Um, I think about so many situations where people feel that it's a mindset. If you think you can't do it, um, then you can't, right? If you think you can do it, you will. I mean, the fact that there are no opportunities in Nigeria means that there are opportunities. Like, there are opportunities to do, like, it's a green field to bring in anything. You know, there's a great story. Um, it's in, I quote it in this book. Um, it's about the two salesmen who go to some village in Africa, and one writes back and says, who's selling shoes? You know the story? Mm -hmm. Selling the shoes, and one comes back and says, oh my gosh, terrible news, no one wears shoes here. And the other one writes back and says, fabulous news, no one wears shoes here. Okay, so the fact that no one wears shoes, you can either look at that as a problem or as an opportunity. You're like, great, we can sell everybody's shoes. So the fact that there are, like, you could build schools, you could build infrastructure, you could build a coffee shop. I mean, you can, this... Yeah, I mean, like, you can do anything. Can like, you buy this? Uh, sorry, what was your name again? Isaac. 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 Yeah. Isaac. Is Tina convincing, or is this just? The, uh, my question is around the skill, right? Yeah, you could do stuff, you could change your village, you could, 
I mean, if you're not operating at a certain level, the impact is not, there are gonna be 100 people like you who would get there and be stuck. How do you move from just a local player, uh, what they call village champion, to becoming a mega success in terms of global performance? Great, so one of the things I talk so about in this book, yes, well, yes, one of the things I talk about in this book is the fact that you choose at some point what stage you want to play out your life. It's the same skills to be the president of the local PTA as to be the president of the United States, right? I mean, it's the same skills in, in general, right? So you have to decide, do I want to be work on my little local community? Do I want to work on a more regional level? Do I want to work nationally? Do I want to be a global stage, right? I mean, uh, example, right, if I invent a new cookie, I can just give you my cookie, you know, a cookie, here it is. I can start a cookie stand at the farmer's market. I can start a cookie store. I can have a national cookie company. I can have a global baking business, right? It all started with one cookie. So I need to have a vision of what I want to do. If you have a vision of what you want to achieve, you will then look at the opportunities that are going to get you there. And I think it, so it comes down to starting out with what the vision of what you can do. I mean, that's what I heard you saying, is that how do I break free from the constraints? And those constraints are in your own mind. Questions, other questions? I don't know, do people agree? Yeah, we got some people yeah. here. Yeah, we got okay, lots of great. questions. So Good. Let's, let's get. I want to get some, some other questions because it's getting late and Tina has lots of books to sign. <laughs> and she's absolutely right on that signing thing, I know. Uh, hi, my name is Ricky Schwartz. I'm the head of IT innovation at Ericsson. Um, I want to go back to the 5 plus 5 equals 10 question. Um, and you said um, infinite choices, right? Um, sometimes infinity creates paralysis. So maybe it's balance, maybe it's constraints, but can you talk a little bit about how to balance constraints right. versus right. infinity? Yeah, it's a really, really interesting point, that tension between creativity and control. So one, there, there are times in which you want problems that are what is the sum of five plus five? It's like, okay, I want to know the answer. There are other times where you really want to be innovative. You want to have a problem where you're given an infinite number of possibilities. For my students, where I am trying to teach them how to be really innovative, I give them problems and I require them to come up with at least 100 solutions. Sometimes they think, you know, that must be a typo. She must have meant 10. No, it's like, no, it's 100. The first wave of ideas are always going to be incremental. Always, they're going to be expected. And this is the problem that companies have all the time. They have a problem to solve. They come up with the first answer and they run with it. That's usually just incremental creative solution. But if they came up with 100 solutions, they would come up with some really wild ones. So we should in do that with our own lives as well? You bet. Absolutely. And in fact, in fact, the best way to come up with great solutions is to come up with really stupid ideas. My favorite assignment I do with my students all the time is they have to come up with the stupidest solution. Can we do a little quick exercise? OK. You guys on this side, come up with really quickly the worst, worst, worst idea you can for a restaurant. Like, the worst idea you can. English food. Rotten food. <laughs> rotten food. Rotten food. Okay, rotten food. You guys over here, turn to someone next to you. You have to come up with the, make the idea of a restaurant with rotten food. Bad, like food that's gone bad. That you have to turn this into the most brilliant idea possible. And it's in the book. Yeah, okay. The most brilliant idea possible. Is that a plan? No. 
What's that? Dry aged steak. Okay, great. Rotten food. So you've got, so, okay, so we're on a dry aged steak. We're going to have cheese. We're going to have wine, right? The whole restaurant is focused on fermented things that are fermented, right? It's rotten food. This is like, it's going to be called culture. We're going to call it culture, and everything is cultured food, okay? So, right? So, anyway, that was just what, but you could come up with, like, what's the worst, worst idea for a family vacation? What about a book? What's the worst idea for a book? The worst idea for a book. This lady in the back. You have a question. Yeah, not about the sorry. Book. Yeah, so I was working with an NGO back in India. Um, sorry, you might introduce yourself, too. I'm Aditi. I'm, I work with Ericsson. Uh, so, I was working with an NGO back in India, and I saw some kids who were really, really interested in studying. But their background as such does not give them that, you know, the future that they would desire. Because they would have some kind of constraints back in the family where they have to take care of a family of five, seven people. And, and they would, wouldn't be able to do it because maybe they, their dad would have passed away because of drinking or something like that. So how do, how do we as citizens or as human beings encourage them to get out of those boundaries and be people who would be successful in their lives? Yeah, so obviously every situation is unique, right? I don't know the specific situation of that family and those people and what their specific constraints are. But I truly believe that if you have a mindset that there is a solution, you're much more likely to find one. If you have a mindset that you're stuck and nothing will ever work, then that's what's gonna happen. And so I don't have an answer right this second, but I do know that if one sat down with them and said, what are the possibilities? How might we make this work? That there, there is gotta be a seed of some possibility. You think of the people in the world who have overcome incredible, incredible disadvantages to make incredible strides for their lives and for the world. And I think we can use those as, as role models. Yeah, it sounds like a really important challenge. Well, it's, it's your point about breaking rules. Some cultures are more comfortable with breaking rules. Yeah. I mean, India is a more, I Indian families, it's very hard to break rules, right? Uh, this gentleman here, because we're coming towards the end. So um, I wanted to ask you when you, you start. introduce yourself to Yeah, my name is Akshay, and I work as an intern at Ericsson. So what I wanted to ask you is like when you start your own company, you, you have this idea and you're not constrained by, you know, rules or bureaucracy, so to say. So you're free to do whatever you want as long as you can influence people to join you or convince them enough that, okay, this is a good idea to get on board with. But once you are a success or you click enough or um, you're successful enough to, you know, reach to the next level and you grow as an organization, you spread out, you try to reach to more people, but you are not able to maintain that flow, that uh, easiness, that, uh, that pre-thinking attitude which you had as when you were a smaller organization. So as, you're, as you grow, how do you uh, keep on maintaining that um, pre-thinking or um, try to stry, uh, stay away from the bureaucracy and stop uh, with the 
as you say, means like getting constrained by the silos or uh, like being compartmentalized. So. Yeah, so keeping a culture um, nimble mm -hmm. as a company gets bigger is certainly a challenge. Um, and one of the things that's important to understand if you're leading the company is what levers you have at your disposal, right? There are whatever rules, the rewards, the incentives, the physical space, the tithe, and of course the people you hire. So you have all of these levers. So being very clear about the type of culture you want to have and then working backwards to put those types of rules and rewards, incentives, physical space, hiring policies in place to reinforce the type of culture you want. Um, it's, it's quite true that as a company gets bigger, that's harder to do. And so you really need to be very thoughtful. There is always going to be a culture, right? Culture is something that is like the air. There's always going to be, it's always going to be there. And so you need to be thoughtful if it's something that's important to you to really be thoughtful in, in shaping it. Once you start, you're like a rebel so to speak, and as you grow, you sort of become a conformist. Yeah. You conform to the rules uh, that, you know, is like yeah. the culture or which is um, generally accepted. So how do you stay true to your roots yeah. and, you know, it's right. like, because more, as more and more people join in, they will seek stability, they will seek, uh, you know, job assurity. Yeah, you could be like Kurt, and you could be a serial entrepreneur. Yeah, just Perpe keep started. Perpetual revolution. Yeah, yeah. Tina, you've been wonderful, but the evening is only just beginning for you because you're going to have to sign some books. So I think Ruth wants to say something, but I really want to thank you for exceptional it was really a pleasure. Thank you very much. So um, again, my name is Ruth. I work here at the AT&T Foundry. I just want to say thank you all for coming tonight and participating in the discussion. Um, the Foundry has been on a four-year journey um, constructing a culture of creativity and we've met many other innovation centers in the, in the Silicon Valley. We've also taken FutureCast on the road in places like Washington, D.C. and Atlanta. And we know there are many innovation hubs trying to crack the code on how to create a culture of creativity. And we here are constantly trying to reinvent and answer those questions. So after many future casts, we said, why don't we do one on how to create a culture of creativity? And Tina has been the perfect speaker to direct this discussion. So thank you so much for being here. Also, thank you to our demo participants. Uh, we have Mural, uh, Rally Team, Quid, Inkling, Startup, and bud to bud um, And in particular, I know that uh, Kurt has been on this journey with us at the Foundry. So has Inkling, so has Quid, and they, they understand what we're trying to do here. Um, so really quick, just wanted to mention again, our hashtag is hashtag SVFutureCast. You can watch all the past videos and the videos from tonight on futurecastseries.com. So go ahead and forward that out and make yourself a celebrity and share a little bit about, uh, about what we talked about tonight, creating culture of creativity. We can also just continue the discussion on our FutureCast Facebook page. It's a great way to keep up on upcoming topics. Our next one is gonna be October 5th. It's on investing for inclusion. We're taking it on the road to Atlanta. We're gonna have Benjamin Jealous. He is the head of Kapoor Capital. Um, a VC that invests in um, minority-owned organizations, very different, very creative, if you will, and also the former president of the NAACP. So that's our next one. So we have a lot of excitement coming up. I also promise you that there's, we're going to do one at the end of October, beginning of, of November, around uh, the uh, Silicon Valley sci-fi, whether these are uh, 
pretend industries or budding industries in Silicon Valley. So you'll want to watch out for that one. Um, so again, thank you so much, Tina. Thank you so much to our demo participants. And thank you, everyone, for being here tonight.